Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. In recent decades, world events have been marked by an eruption of major protest movements around the world, amid deepening social and political inequalities, which have been exacerbated by the ongoing COVID events. In 2020, for instance, amid widespread COVID lockdowns, a spate of major protests occurred in countries across the globe, with millions marching through the streets demanding jobs, democratic freedoms, social justice and an end to corruption. In addition, there have been an unprecedented global wave of student protests. Prior to this, the 2010s have been described as a decade of protests around the world, marked by the anti-austerity events in Southern Europe and the Arab Spring in 2011, eventually ending the decade with a grand swell of anti-government demonstrations in countries such as India, Iraq, Lebanon, Hong Kong, parts of Europe and beyond. Indeed, the Mass Mobilization Data Project, which tracks protests outside the United States, has recorded nearly 7,000 protests from 153 countries over the past 10 years. In addition, over several decades, social activists and NGOs have traditionally raised concerns about the criminalization of indigenous people, for example, who uphold their right to land and natural resources, and have voiced clear opposition to continuous economic development by governments and large corporations. Also during the global recession of 2008, many liberal democratic states responded to the economic crisis by introducing austerity policies which provoked widespread dissent. As a result, various governments suppressed these actions by criminalizing political protests and the social movements they represented. As such, social movements are defined in terms of the have-nots or those displaced elements of society that mobilize and stand in opposition to existing power structures. Great emphasis is placed on the popular social constitution of these movements and the fact that they go against the grain of state power through the organization of various grassroots movements. However, in this episode, I aim to focus on a unique perspective pertaining to the control and management of economic resources which is the phenomenon of advanced revolts or social movements comprising individuals and groups who presently have access to some form of resources and power, but whose demands and claims are consequently framed not in terms of inclusion, redistribution or recognition, but rather the opposite expressed as social economic exclusion or a form of political dispossession which affects people at an individual or collective level. These are usually majority communities that already enjoy social, economic and political privilege but are pursuing a form of class activism such as the student demonstrations mentioned earlier or it could be based on blue or white collar professionalism. In this episode, my focus will be on the recent trucker convoy protests which took place in Ottawa, Canada from late January to mid-February 2022. 
But first, to elucidate this topic, it's necessary to introduce some context. And to do this, I will be relying on the paradigm of neoliberalism, which loosely defined is an ever-changing alignment of social, political and cultural forces. However, its core ideology and policy framework emphasizes the value of free market competition or laissez-faire economics. Although there is considerable debate as to the defining features of neoliberal thought and practice, it is generally viewed as a mechanism used by liberal-based democracies to promote global trade and investment, supposedly for all nations to prosper and develop fairly and equitably. An in-depth examination of neoliberalism is far beyond the scope of this episode, but the salient features include the following. Firstly, the pursuit of sustained economic growth as the means to achieve human progress. Secondly, is belief that free markets are the most efficient allocation of resources. Thirdly, a clear emphasis on minimal state intervention in economic and social affairs. And finally, its commitment to the freedom of trade and capital. In addition, these guiding principles are manifested in key policy frameworks, such as reduced public expenditure for social services, such as health or education, deregulation to allow market forces to act as a self-regulating mechanism, privatization of public enterprise, and a shift towards individualism and individual responsibility. The arrival of neoliberalism was first seen in the West during the early 1980s as a project that David Harvey in his 2007 book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, states was to restore the conditions necessary for the accumulation of capital while also restoring power to economic elites. Neoliberalism will be used as a reference point throughout this episode because the underlying principles of this vast and complex ideology are central to understanding the background to the events in Ottawa, thus propelling the Canadian truckers and the Freedom Convoy to international prominence. So how did the events in Ottawa begin? Well, the Freedom Convoy 2022, which converged in Ottawa on January 28th, began in response to the federal government's requirement for Canadian truck drivers crossing the US border to be fully vaccinated in order to avoid subsequent testing and quarantine requirements. However, it gradually morphed into a protest against ongoing public health measures implemented during the COVID events. And since late January, Central Ottawa effectively became a huge parking lot for hundreds of semi-trucks, pickup trucks and other vehicles, including motorhomes. The owners of these vehicles argued that they had become weary and frustrated with continuous social restrictions and the inequality created by vaccine mandates and passports, demanding an end to such measures. And as a result, thousands of people participated in a rally on Parliament Hill on January 29th and several hundred truckers began a standoff near Parliament building, stating that they would not move until their demands were met. And what was the reaction to the protest? Well, the Canadian Trucking Alliance, the main advocacy body for truckers, distanced itself from the protest, saying the vast majority of its members had been fully vaccinated and they had continued to work. The core organisers of the protest argued that they are not anti-vaccine, but oppose mandates that require a vaccination for people to work. 
The truckers initially wanted an end to cross-border vaccine mandates for truck drivers, but the blockade gradually evolved into an anti-government and anti-Prime Minister Trudeau demonstration. Many residents and businesses criticised the protesters for continually honking their horns and setting off fireworks late at night and overall creating a very noisy atmosphere. At the same time, many local politicians condemned the protest by referring to it as an occupation. However, after three weeks of protest against COVID restrictions, Canadian law enforcement authorities adopted a more sterner tone during the week commencing 14th February, after much criticism of being too lenient. And by Thursday, 17th February, four of the main organisers had already been taken into custody and more than 200 protesters were arrested as hundreds of officers, including a horseback unit, formed lines and slowly isolated protesters from their vehicles. On February 18th, there were tense scenes as protesters were dragged from their vehicles and others who resisted the police advance were thrown to the ground with their hands zip-tied behind their back. By Friday evening, most of those arrested had been charged with the offence of causing mischief. Also, around 79 vehicles had been towed away, including those which had blocked Wellington Street and other main roads in the downtown area. In an attempt to bring normality to the capital city, Ottawa Police exercised emergency powers that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked during the early part of the week. Indeed, Trudeau became the first Prime Minister to invoke the Emergencies Act, granting his government sweeping powers to prevent gatherings in key locations, tow vehicles, suspend driving licenses and freeze bank accounts. Immediately, reports surfaced of heavy-handed police tactics. On Saturday 19th February, Canadian police used pepper spray and stun grenades in a final push to clear the capital of trucks and demonstrators. Police used loudspeakers to warn the crowd to disperse or face imminent arrest. Officers also smashed vehicle windows to arrest people that had locked themselves inside. But by this stage, the overall number of protesters had been greatly reduced compared with previous days, with approximately 200 remaining near the advancing police cordon. By this stage, many truck owners had already begun leaving central Ottawa of their own accord. But there was also much criticism of the decision by police to push back protester lines with mounted horse units. In one particular incident, two people were severely injured after being trampled by the horse charge, including an elderly woman with a walking aid. Consequently, organisers posted on Twitter that they were shocked at the abuse of power by law enforcement authorities in Ottawa. Videos of the horse trampling incident soon began circulating online and received much condemnation from especially news agencies outside Canada. Other video footage also emerged following the weekend of arrest, showing shocking scenes of excessive police brutality and intimidatory tactics. So let's now look at the mosaic of different views surrounding the events in Ottawa. What began as a protest against vaccine requirements for truck drivers morphed into a much wider social movement, inspiring protests in other countries, including France, the Netherlands, Austria, United States, New Zealand and Israel. According to the majority of mainstream media outlets, the protesters have been described as a tiny minority, 
in a country which has on the whole accepted COVID vaccinations. Indeed, Canada has one of the highest rates of full vaccination anywhere in the world, with more than 80% of people now covered. And with regard to public opinion in Canada, according to a recent Ipsos poll published on February 17, 2022, and conducted on behalf of globalnews.ca, the truckers protesting in Ottawa has the sympathy of many Canadians, even if they don't agree with everything that has been said or done by the protesters. Nearly half, 46% of Canadians, say that they may not agree with everything that the protesters in Ottawa have said, but their frustration is legitimate and worthy of our sympathy. And the figure rose to 61% among the 18 to 34-year-old category. Conversely, a slim majority, 54%, adopted a contrasting view, arguing that what the protesters in Ottawa have said and done is wrong and does not deserve any sympathy. Across the political spectrum, there was a very consistent response. Former Ottawa police chief Peter Slowly, who resigned over criticism of his department's handling of the protest, referred to the situation as a siege of the city. The Ontario Premier Doug Ford called it an occupation and the city's mayor Jim Watson declared a state of emergency, referring to the protesters as yahoos. In addition, the federal government announced on Saturday 19th February that it will provide 20 million Canadian dollars in relief funds to small businesses that have been affected by the demonstrations, which effectively shut down central Ottawa for more than three weeks. According to news agencies, the response from the local Ottawa community has generally been one of frustration, anger and indifference to the demonstrators. In certain incidents, confrontations have occurred as a small number of protesters insulted individuals wearing masks. Many local residents have complained of being intimidated and forced to endure a constant barrage of truck horns. The Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told MPs in Parliament that it was, quote, high time that these illegal and dangerous activities stop. And later, referring to the protesters, he stated, quote, they are a threat to our economy and our relationship with trading partners. They are a threat to public safety. The Freedom Convoy has quickly become a defining moment in Trudeau's leadership because he refused to engage with the protesters' demands. A decision that led two Liberal MPs to break rank, but he has also come under intense criticism for his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, granting his government unprecedented social control and civil power. Perhaps the decision to resort to emergency powers was triggered by high-level intelligent assessments pre prepared by Canada's Integrated Terrorism Assessment Centre, ITAC. They had previously warned authorities in late January that it was likely that extremists were involved and said that the scale of the protest could, quote, pose a trigger point and opportunity for potential lone actor attack attackers to conduct a terrorism attack. ITAC reported that supporters of the convoy have advocated civil war, calling for violence against Prime Minister Trudeau, and said the protest could be used as Canada's January the 6th, a reference to the storming of the US Capitol. However, when most people review the images of the Ottawa events from various news organisations, 
The overriding conclusion that most observers arrive at is that of a peaceful protest attended by a vast spectrum of law-abiding citizens. So what was the response from major news outlets? Let's take a quick snapshot view of different headlines from the mainstream media. Article 1. Some trucker convoy organisers have history of white nationalism racism. Globalnews.ca, dated January 29th. Article 2. The Ottawa truck convoy is rooted in Canada's settler colonial history. The Washington Post, February 17th. Article 3. The giddy, terrifying siege of Ottawa. The New York Times, February 17th. Article 4. The whole world should be worried by the siege of Ottawa. This is about much more than a few anti-vax truckers. Guardian newspaper, UK, February the 8th. Article 5. Media's handling of trucker convoy, one-sided, inflammatory, shameful. Toronto Sun, dated January 28th. And in each of the above headlines, bar one from the Toronto Sun, a highly negative view of the Freedom Convoy is depicted, employing the standard weaponry of media attacks such as bias and pejorative labelling to destroy credibility and delegitimize the demonstrators and their support base as representative of a minority fringe element with right-wing views. And to highlight a quick example of the use of labelling, the Guardian newspaper throughout its coverage of the Ottawa events consistently adds the prefix so-called in front of the words Freedom Convoy, thereby creating an altogether new description and meaning of the term. Hence, so-called Freedom Convoy immediately creates a form of otherness in order to shut down or negate any attempt at rational debate. The overall effect is to demonize and destroy the credibility of any alternative argument. But it's also clear that the Freedom Convoy's emerging social movement has crystallized a dormant undercurrent of frustration and weariness from two years of COVID restrictions. According to the protesters, their main objective was to provide a prompt to the rest of the Canadian population against government overreach in relation to the inequality and social division created by vaccine mandate. As such, it's the ideas of social protest and dissent, in particular their stigmatization which will now form the main analysis and discussion for the remainder of this episode. So let's now explore the ideas behind the criminalization of social protest. In previous decades the main source of criticism against the criminal prosecution of protesters came largely from the human rights movement. But there are inherent flaws with this approach because it involves a process of de- politicization. In other words, human rights violations cannot be viewed in isolation from the broader context surrounding the political issues at stake. And more recently, social scientists have embraced an alternative approach to the criminalization of social protests. This method takes into account the power relations between different groups and sectors in society. And the focal point shifts from the individual to the broader context of the event or activity. It offers critical analysis to the question of whether a protest is defined as peaceful or legal. Also, are certain practices by the authorities considered to be a disproportionate response to a legitimate protest? In addition, the term criminalization 
sheds light on issues such as the charge of criminality and the subsequent prosecution of individuals, the excessive use of police violence against demonstrators, the demonization of a social movement from the viewpoint of the media. So how, one might ask, does criminalization apply to the contemporary form of capitalism in its neoliberal form? Well, the criminalization of dissent and protest is a key feature of neoliberalism because it's designed to sustain a social order and ideology, one which focuses on promoting the interests of the elites of society while demonizing the non-elites in order to perpetuate the accumulation of capital over time. And this process creates a dystopian worldview in which social problems and questions of deviance such as dissent are reduced to the status of individual pathologies. A perfect example of this relates to wider issues of public health, such as public dissent in refusing to accept mandatory vaccinations. Also, any form of collective action, such as social resistance, even for legitimate protest, are deemed to be an attack on the state not only on governing authorities, but also on wider society. The neoliberal apparatus aims to not only subdue and marginalize the traditional working classes, but to undermine the security of many of the professional middle classes by disciplining them. One form of resistance to this act of discipline is political protest, and particularly when protest is informed by not just a critique of the state, but also the pursuit of an alternative vision of society. In this situation, the authorities will seek to prevent such protest or indeed subdue it. By tackling such protest or dissent, the aim of the authorities is, ironically, to prevent a more democratic and socially accountable version of society. This ensures control of the social and political levers which link the ruling elites to the upper echelons of capital. And this was amply demonstrated during the global financial crisis and subsequent recession of 2007-2008. The underlying ideology of neoliberalism is designed to prevent or subdue protest and therefore marginalise political dissent. This doctrine of marginalisation was clearly evident during the events of the Freedom Convoy. And this scenario becomes instructive for anyone interested in questions of civil liberty, in the freedom to express one's political views and in the basic right to tolerance of dissent and freedom of association and expression, all of which are considered guaranteed rights in any democratic society. And what's at stake is the degree to which formal constitutional rights are being manipulated by neoliberal ideology. To justify the deeper policing of social order, for example, by making sweeping generalizations that popular support for the Freedom Convoy is largely associated with right-wing political extremism, thereby criminalizing such support. But let's pause for a moment and think about what's just been said, because to any casual observer, this narrative of a deep-rooted ideology which aims to police social order through preventative measures appears to be a fantastical account based on intrigue and subterfuge. After all, we are constantly reminded that living in a democracy ensures certain inalienable rights, including the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of thought, 
the right to freedom from intimidation or excessive punishment, the right to privacy, the right to move freely within one's country of residence. But how far do these rights extend when it comes to organised protest? Are there any precedents which we can rely upon which can offer guidance in this situation in the context of recent Canadian history? Well, there are two examples which I'd like to focus on. The first example is, number one, the G8, G20 economic summits in Toronto, 2010. These events were dominated by paramilitary-style policing strategies in which thousands of protesters and innocent onlookers were subjected to an aggressive and confrontational policing strategy that contravened basic legal principles and constitutional freedoms. Many people were incarcerated, often without charge, and this was done in an arbitrary and heavy-handed manner. At the time, these policing strategies, which caused considerable public disquiet, were not altogether new because they had been consistently deployed at many G8 summits over the past decade in various other international locations. During and in preparation for the G8, G20 summits, the threat of protester violence was consistently invoked as the main justification for exceptional security measures. From the introduction of punitive legal powers to excessive use of force, the goal of upholding summit security regularly trumped concerns for the protection of civil and political rights. Prior to 2010, the public record shows that policing agencies in Canada possessed comparatively little experience and infrastructure for controlling mass demonstrations on the scale and scope of the G8 and G20 summits. These events were a precursor for the expansion of what many researchers have described as a post 9-11 security state, supporting the build-up of new weapons and technologies for crowd control and surveillance, as well as a modernized security infrastructure. Interestingly, while the immediate security outcome of the G8, G20 summit were limited to the short term, the security apparatus employed set an alarming precedent, indicating a high probability that they would be redeployed in the future. I'd like to take a brief pause at this point because we're coming up to a short break. Much more to come in the next segment. See you soon. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada. The second precedent in recent Canadian history is that of the Quebec student strikes in 2012, also referred to as the Maple Spring protest. The Quebec student protests, which began in February 2012, ending in September 2012, were a reaction to the Charest Liberal government's proposed increases in university tuition fees announced in March 2011 which then evolved into further general action. The student demonstrations provoked a strong response from the state and the university management board. Apart from heavy-handed and occasionally violent police tactics used to disrupt marches and rallies during the Maple Spring, Quebec's Liberal government provided a harsh response by suspending basic rights to freedom of expression, assembly and dissent. And as the action continued, there were unsuccessful attempts by the state to use legal instruments such as injunctions or safeguard orders that nullified student rights of association. By May 2012, student protesters were being arrested by armed police on the grounds that their 
protest was illegal and the Sharay government passed Bill 78, an emergency law which banned protest or picketing near university grounds and required police approval for any public protests in Quebec. The key tactic to criminalise dissent was the government's declaration that student protests were a form of criminal violence, a move intended to delegitimise and discredit the protests. And from 2011 onwards, many students were investigated for months afterwards by government intelligence agencies and some arrested on the grounds that they were dangerous political agents. Let's now compare the two examples discussed to the similarities between the events in Ottawa. In both examples just provided, we can immediately see comparisons to Ottawa. For example, the use of shock tactics and disproportionate force, which has been well documented in recently seen video footage since the police began breaking protester lines. In particular, the trampling incident by police horses and other videos of police harassment of bystanders and excessive force used on arrested demonstrators. Furthermore, there are also clear similarities in terms of heavy financial penalties facing those arrested in the Ottawa protests, in addition to freezing of assets and bank accounts, which also extended to those found contributing financially to the fund base of the Freedom Convoy. The examples cited offer scrutiny on local and federal government and their strategies of democratic representation. They help to objectively define the relations between rulers and ruled, or more precisely, the forces of order and the forces of dissent. The example shed light on a moment when global capitalism and the ideological system that governs it have entered into a period of deep overlapping crisis, raising uncomfortable questions about constitutional rights and freedoms. We are also reminded that the additional powers harnessed by the Emergencies Act have created a form of authoritarian rule. But the most pressing question is, can social protest be contained and sequestered? And if so, with what results? In this regard, the state remains a key participant and the fine balance between legal and illegal is still the primary modality, shaping its conduct going forward. Criminalization becomes a tried and tested tactic for dealing with unwanted behaviour such as social protest because it severely restricts the options available to demonstrators and prevents continuity. And I'd like to briefly explore this idea of prevention because it has ramifications for how social protest is delegitimized. Indeed, the idea of prevention becomes a symbolic word at the present moment for the Canadian government and its law enforcement authorities with regard to the following defending the capital ottawa as a symbol of stately power also the prevention of crime the prevention of a repeat populist protest such as the freedom convoy under these circumstances governments are more likely to favor prevention because it's much easier to opt for prevention than to cure the problem but more worryingly prevention can be projected into the future and must be addressed in the present. Ultimately, the wish for greater prevention can be viewed as the desire to master an uncertain future. So preventative measures are often propagated as a panacea or type of salvation. But history teaches us that the opportunity to control future events can soon turn into an obsession. Whoever wants to control the future must know everything about the present, which ironically, also affects the future. 
So prevention inevitably means more surveillance and control, more data collection, and ultimately an erosion of individual and civil rights. In all of its complexity, prevention can be viewed as an unspecific demand from government, a call to reason towards its people, but eventually it becomes an endless demand that can never be satiated. Prevention compels us to think about how to behave properly by focusing on what might be good for an individual or wider society. But is this also true of the Freedom Convoy protesters? Many were forced to ponder on the preventative measures of the police authorities, especially those that openly stated, I'm doing nothing wrong. I'm simply here to protest. What have I done wrong? But instead, should they be asking what's wrong with our government and the society which they have engineered? And from this perspective, prevention becomes a tool to attack the legitimacy of social protest and serves to delegitimize the demands citizens have. Let's now turn our attention to the issue of ideology and how neoliberalism legitimized the use of force in Ottawa. The political and economic elites in liberal democracies present themselves as modernizers or new democrats, which is essentially code for deregulation, privatization and a dismantling of public services. Moreover, given that neoliberals rely on a neoclassical approach to economics, the world is distilled and compartmentalized to give everything an economic value. Thus, each person becomes a market participant and every human action and institution becomes a market or commercial arena. And even the state is viewed as a corporate entity which needs to be kept free from outside interference. As David Harvey has observed in A Brief History of Neoliberalism, quote, while neoliberals claim they are engaged in an economic project that needs to be separate from the state, it is in fact a deeply political project reliant on significant and continual state intervention. Hence, in the case of the truckers' convoy, the state, through its guise of corporate entity, will employ the use of criminal law and policing to secure state interests against threats such as rival alternative entities to the prevailing economic order. Another feature of neoliberalism that helps explain to some degree the criminalization of the Freedom Convoy is that the overriding power of the market aims to depoliticize and diminish the public by removing debate about vaccine mandates from the public sphere and shifting it to the private domain. Debates about the type of society we want post-COVID have been either constrained or rendered silent. Indeed, any attempt to have a comprehensive debate and to question the authority of the government elites about the impact of dominant COVID-related issues are simply shut down to ensure the neoliberal agenda remains intact. As the public sphere shrinks, avenues for opposition and dissent are restricted or removed. Political dissent and civil disobedience are reframed as security risks to the state by criminalizing and pathologizing the truckers' social movement and those participating in it. So by representing democratic debate in the form of an alternative political scenario, i.e. the removal of mandates, this becomes something dangerous and the state needs to respond to this. The government's response is very clear to remove the risks or 
danger to neoliberalism through state power rather than addressing the causes of the discontent of those protesting. The shrinking public sphere, which was just mentioned, has a direct influence on the next area of analysis, which is the criminalization of dissent. Now, dissent is a central feature of social change and political struggle, and while often confused with protest, it is more diverse and therefore requires a more qualitative definition. Dissent is not just an act of resistance against a prevailing set of ideas, but rather a mechanism through which changes in the dominant cultural system are achieved. The criminalization of dissent through various processes threatens citizens' rights to engage in collective and individual forms of resistance, and it narrows the scope for critical dialogue, and therefore has a direct bearing on two key areas of our discussion. Firstly, the policing of protest and anti-terror legislation. Let's start with the policing of protest and forms of state repression. Research shows that in Western democracies, police strategies of control from the late 1960s through to the 1980s shifted from escalated force, which involved harsh repression of even minor forms of transgression, towards negotiated management, which reduces the emphasis on force in favour of dialogue and tolerance of the right to dissent. This shift reflected the growing condemnation by the public of the coercive style of policing of protest. But in the 1990s, a selective nature of protest policing was adopted with diverse policing styles to be used in different situations. However, there was also an authoritarian turn in the policing of protests which arose from the unequal power relations between increasingly criminalized protesters and the police acting with relative legal impunity, in particular the increased militarization of protest policing. Paramilitary police units view political activists as nothing more than enemy combatants to be neutralized rather than as practitioners of democracy to be protected, thus challenging the concept of police neutrality. In other words, the police are not neutral arbitrators of law and order, but aim to preserve the existing social order and protect the interests of the ruling elite. More generally, where protest challenges the status quo and disrupts social order, it will be dealt with violently by the police. The criminalization of dissent also brings into focus the idea of state repression, which is determined by the severity of the threat a social movement presents to the state. And this raises serious questions about how and why political authorities use coercive power in the domestic arena to respond to potential and existing challenges. And now let's look at anti-terror legislation. Anti-terror legislation threatens human rights and civil liberties in Western democracies because the criminalization of dissent becomes hidden in the rhetoric of state security. And this is consistent with Prime Minister Trudeau's invoking of the Emergency Act against peaceful protesters. Furthermore, security strategies to counter extremism are used to depoliticize those deemed by the state as extremists by criminalizing the alternative viewpoint. In the Ottawa protest, demonstrators were labeled as a fringe element and the organizers were linked to right-wing extremism. By comparison, in the United States, the effects of anti-terror legislation on environmentalists are well documented. Law enforcement redefines these groups as eco-terrorists, which 
instantly changes perceptions from peaceful environmentalists to violent domestic terrorists. Let's now look at how these two issues of policing of protests and anti-terror legislation have been applied by examining dissent in practice. According to authors Greg Albo and Carlo Fanelli in their 2014 publication entitled Austerity Against Democracy, an Authoritarian Phase of Neoliberalism, they argue that protest and dissent have been met with a hardening of the state based on, quote, a multiplication of legalized restrictions and policing modalities for the disciplining of dissent. In some cases, the denial of constitutional rights through coercive state intervention has been done in the name of democracy itself, as was the case post 9-11 under President George W. Bush, using the guise of the Patriot Act. According to the authors of the report, dissent tends to be framed as a threat to competition and economic recovery. A range of police tactics are being employed to crush dissent, including police infiltration and defunding equity-seeking organisations, closing down public space for protest and expanding fines and criminal charges for illegal protests. And all of these factors we've seen in the Ottawa Freedom Convoy. Indeed, the origins to the intensification of protest policing in the post-2008 period can be sourced to the new modes of regulations and powers that the police had in their arsenal after September the 11th, 2001. For instance, the Canadian Anti-Terrorism Act, ATA, was passed by the Canadian government in response to the 9-11 attacks in the United States. The Omnibus Bill extended the powers of government and institutions within the Canadian security establishment to respond to the threat of terrorism. Many commentators have questioned the legitimacy of some of the Act's more controversial provisions, especially in a country which prides itself as a world leader in respect for human rights and individual freedoms. In passing the Anti-Terrorism Act, the government places the very essence of Canadian values at risk because it undermines the safety and security of Canadians more than it protects them. The ATA in Canada gave the police new powers in dealing with terrorism by allowing police to preventatively arrest on suspicion and hold for up to 72 hours without charges. This was something which had not existed before in the law except with the War Measures Act used by Trudeau Sr. responding to the FLQ or October crisis in 1970. Critics at the time expressed concern that these changes in the law would become permanent aspects of criminal law. Interestingly, though, the ATA has been revised twice under the present Trudeau government in 2015 and 2020, with the passing of Bill C-51, which makes significant and controversial changes to national security, anti-terrorism and privacy laws. One of the most significant criticisms of the bill is that the scope of the intended offence is unclear because it is vaguely worded to cover quote, terrorism offences in general. And in both instances, it becomes evident that the Canadian government intended to make these changes permanent and hence extend its powers further than before. The recent changes adopted after 9-11 were designed to make the role of police broader and more coercive than it ever was before. And my next area of discussion in relation to protest and dissent is the annihilation of public space by neoliberalism. 
Leslie Wood, in his 2014 book entitled Crisis and Control, the Militarization of Protest Policing, states that policing in North America and the UK have seen a shift towards, quote, increasing police impunity, and it involves an integration of previously distinct fields of public and private policing with security and intelligence activities. And this change is consistent with the neoliberal transformation of public space, as cities have become the competitive centers of finance, insurance, real estate, and their ancillary services. New police strategies have been introduced, such as the controversial broken windows policing model and zero tolerance policy, which have dramatically increased the role of police in eliminating any evidence of social disorder. But curiously, these approaches seem to affect the most marginalized elements of society much more severely, such as the poorest and those of color. Wood argues that the policing of the so-called penal state has become the norm where, quote, police operate within a context of ongoing social cleansing in which legal, cultural and political space for dissent has narrowed, facilitated by legislative tools like anti-terrorism laws, bans on protest and an increased state capacity for surveillance and border control. And these changes were in evidence before the 2008 recession and have continued ever since. A prime example of this intensification of state repression occurred in Toronto in 2010 during the policing of the 2010 G8-G20 summit. And as mentioned earlier in the episode, this summit was marked by an intense militarization of police and space and a disturbing lack of transparency, legality and democracy. At the site of the summit, a large fence was erected, which was six and a half kilometers in perimeter and three meters high to protect the delegates of the G20 countries. The events have been meticulously documented by authors Deborah Cohen and Neil Smith in their 2010 publication, Martial Law in the Streets of Toronto, G20 Security and State Violence. The fenced area barred any public access and effectively militarized about two square kilometers of downtown Toronto. Incidentally, compare this with three kilometers of Ottawa's downtown core, which has been contained following recent events there. In 2010, a law was passed by the province which allowed the arrest and jailing of anyone who would not produce identification to police. This law was passed without public knowledge and was set to expire before it was actually announced. As protesters marched down the streets of Toronto, they were met by riot police who unleashed tear gas and rubber bullets at point-blank range on peaceful demonstrators. The police continued to push them in various directions away from the so-called yellow zone where the summit was actually taking place. Makeshift jails were used in the form of cages to house those arrested where they had no access to water, phone calls or legal assistance. And for those bystanders and protesters arrested, numbering around 110, they were sent to a film studio transformed into a detention centre where again, they lacked access to basic rights such as water or medical care. Intimidation, threats of physical violence and humiliation were all part of the temporary jail. Those who came to protest and call for the release of those detained were met by brutal force, with police resorting to rubber bullets and tear gas to disperse protesters. 
the G20 summit is a disturbing example of authoritarian neoliberal practices manifested in policing. Here we see the coercive apparatus of the state acting in lockstep with capital through increasingly militarized activity. The province of Ontario, without any democratic approval, passed through what essentially became martial law in total secrecy. And as already reported by news agencies and independent witnesses, the events of the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa illustrate that policing continues to not only target behaviour and the maintenance of order, but also target space itself through the militarisation of urban space. In Ottawa, this became a new reality for the protesters there, because the space for different modes of political expression and peaceful protest had been brutally usurped by police authorities. Let's now consider the significance of spatial context to dissent and protest. The spatial context of the protests in Ottawa are significant because they represented a call to reappropriate a public space which became expropriated by neoliberal development. Prior to this, a common element in many waves of historical protest has been the concern with public space. Think of recent examples including Taksim Square, Turkey 2013, Tahrir Square, Egypt 2013, Tiananmen Square, Beijing 1989, just to name a few examples. Protests across the globe, especially in 2011, such as Greece and Spain, were partially directed against policies of privatisation, corruption and real estate development, which exacerbated during the economic recession of 2008. This led to a massive projection of discontent over concerns with just how democratically the public was being ruled. And it's within the context of globalised capitalism that we are able to understand the protests against the militarisation of public space. The neoliberal development changed the spatial dimensions of social life, but more importantly, the symbolic meanings of space. For instance, the Ottawa protests were initially directed at dominant socio-spatial orders such as social distancing and mandatory mask wearing. But from the viewpoint of the Freedom Convoy protesters, the right to central Ottawa and its downtown core is an enactment of individual rights and freedoms. The broader right to space extends beyond the urban scale and confers privileges which are normally reserved for city officials, such as developers and planners. That's because in neoliberal Understanding urban space is viewed as owned property, its role being to generate pure economic productivity. Hence, by claiming a right to the city as the truckers did, it challenges this viewpoint and offers a distinctly new vision. In other words, the struggle over space in Ottawa is a struggle for democracy through the reappropriation of public spheres by making demands, exercising their right to protest and engage directly in a political conversation. The truckers were essentially demanding a return to the original meaning of Canadian democracy, albeit without COVID mandates. So let's now wrap up with some concluding remarks. Firstly, the real innovation of policing under neoliberalism has been the implementation of a robust law and order strategy to initiate major changes in society. This form of policing has been expanded throughout the neoliberal world as evidenced by the spate of protest movements since 2010. Furthermore, this type of policing has focused on space or more precisely the denial of public space. 
for anything that challenges capital accumulation. Over the past five decades, although neoliberalism has transitioned through various phases, it has become increasingly authoritarian after each new crisis. But the underlying rationale of policing to protect capital accumulation has continued nevertheless. Perhaps, therefore, it is understandable that as each new crisis threatens to engulf liberal democracies, there is a growing disengagement with electoral politics. And this represents a major problem for politicians because without significant voter participation, democratic governments lose their legitimacy. But what we see is there's an immediate contradiction here because as liberal democratic governments stigmatize and criminalize individuals that engage in social movements and form protest activity, they are simultaneously trying to secure their vote, especially through younger people, by preaching the values of political activism and participation within a democracy. Essentially it becomes a vicious circle because when the viewpoints of the trucker convoy supporters are delegitimized compared to the legitimate viewpoints conferred upon the dominant political class, the fate of legitimacy ultimately depends on those that are delegitimized. Secondly, there are deep contradictions which become exposed in the conflicting nature of liberal democratic politics with their distinct branches of liberalism and democracy. Firstly, liberalism is committed to the rule of law and the protection of basic rights. Secondly, democracy argues that its legitimacy is based on the principle of democratic majority rule. However, the majority rule principle often means that minorities are subject to the denial of their rights and liberties by the majority. Equally, the desire to apply the rule of law, such as a constitution or a bill of rights, sometimes mean that democratic governments can have their legislation or policies lawfully challenged and overturned by the courts. Hence, liberalism is always being challenged by democracy and vice versa. Thirdly, there are major fractures within liberalism itself. Classical liberalism, for example, advocates the freedom and protection of all. However, when policing authorities sidestep these rights and liberties in order to promote the security of the wider community, this raises real concerns about the open-ended interpretation of liberalism. As Mark Neoclius argues in his 2007 article, security, liberty, and the myth of balance. He challenges the idea that there is a balance between security and liberty, as illustrated by Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act. Neoclius argues that the idea of balance is essentially a liberal myth because liberalism's key focus is not liberty, but actually security. And this is evidenced by politicians opting for the security route in Canada. And what I'm referring to here is a key vote in the Canadian Parliament on Monday, 21st February. The Liberals and the NDP approved the Emergency Act to be deployed against the trucker convoy and their protesters. 185 MPs voted in favour of the Act, while 151 voted against. The events of the trucker convoy have clearly shown that once a perceived threat to the security of the state is identified, 
then any dilemma between security and liberty will always be resolved in favor of state security because it is the default setting within the neoliberalism order. And fourthly, if the Freedom Convoy has highlighted one thing, it is this. Politics of those in Canada and abroad that feel dispossessed and marginalized has assumed a new level of urgency and a renewed political fervor. While advanced revolts of this type have become more familiar and visible since the global recession of 2008, they certainly are not isolated incidents and point to a much deeper rot which exists at the core of various neoliberal democracies. From the peaceful public rallies and social protests inspired by the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa to mass protests by dispossessed peasants over land seizures in rural China. Essentially, we are witnessing new modes of exclusion and disempowerment created by the neo neoliberal order. However, these incidents also create new opportunities for political engagement and assertion by marginalized populations. In the final analysis, it does seem ironic that it was a convoy of large semi-trucks that pitted itself against the soulless juggernaut of market forces, which have imposed themselves globally through neoliberal politics and its various forms of state apparatus. And despite the fact that social movements and protests do have the potential to create alternative experiments in freedom, we are also reminded of the vast effort to move beyond the violence, inequality and insidiousness created by the neoliberal order. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.